Welcome to Harrison Church. Over the last few weeks, we've been learning about the deadly sins of the Christian tradition. Gluttony, anger, sloth, and greed. This week, Pastor Kyle takes us through another complicated subject of lust. And in the past few weeks, Pastor Shane has uh, spoken about uh, gluttony, our um, um, desire or love for consumption, um, uh, anger, uh, greed. Last week, greed, the selfish desire for money or the things that money uh, buy. And, um, And so today we are moving forward with the sin of lust. And I can't tell you how excited I am. The list that we've been working through uh, was established fairly early in the history of the church. And and then it was redefined uh, over a couple of centuries. But it's made up of our natural or our inherent actions. We are naturally hungry. We do need to eat. We need money to get along in this world, to, to pay rent, to buy a home, uh, and uh, to, uh, to get along in uh, society requires money. Um, sometimes the anger moves us to act uh, on behalf of, of justice or justice ministries or to fight for the oppressed. And but what gives them their... What what causes them to be sinful or can creep sin can creep in is the abuse or the excessive version of them. So when just enough becomes too much, or the excessive love of consumption, the excessive desire for money, anger that explodes into violence and vengeance. And so if we take a closer look at the sins, they really can be divided into three categories or three different types of love. There is excessive love, uh, lust, greed, gluttony. There is deficient love, sloth, we just don't care and aren't willing to even give it any effort or attention. Or malicious love, anger, envy, and pride all rooted in love, but expressed in a a way as to damage ourselves and relationship with others. Love attached to the wrong objects for the wrong reasons and in the wrong ways. So uh, I've selected a scripture passage for today. I'm going to read to you, so if you'd stand as you are able. It'll uh, it'll come to us from uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians. Uh, out of chapter 5, and I'll begin reading with verse 13. You'll see the words uh, on the screen behind me. Paul says, You were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If, however, you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit. And what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, 
to prevent you from doing what you want. But if you, led, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not subject to the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. That's quite a list. I am warning you as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. The Word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So I attended a. Um, so I attended a. Um, a student ministries event one time years ago, where the speaker of the day came out on the stage carrying a great big brown paper um, grocery sack. And out of the sack, there was a cord, an electrical cord, running off the stage somewhere behind the curtains. And he began to engage the students by saying that I have in this bag one of the most incredible discoveries for humanity of all time. And it has the power to to bring light and life, energy and excitement and thrills, and yet at the same time, if it's mishandled, it can hurt and harm and bring death. And so after asking one of the students to come out, to come up on the stage, and and he invited him to reach in the bag and grab whatever it was that was on the other end of that cord, and of course he was scared to death, and it didn't help that the the speaker was sort of teasing him and prompting him a little bit, and said, you just got to do it fast, don't look. Just reach in there and grab it. And so on the count of three, he reached in and grabbed it, and it was the other end of the extension cord, the electricity. And it was from this illustration that he proceeded to address the students about the power, the energy, the excitement, and the dangers of our human sexuality. And so with today, we'll deal with the sin of lust. But I, and, and of course, we won't have time to do it uh, completely or do it, um, uh, cover it uh, well uh, in 20 minutes. So I do want to offer a couple of resources for you. I don't normally do this, but um, this is, these are some of the resources that I studied, and I know some of you are note-takers. So uh, I will offer up for your own edification the t- book titled Sinning. Like a Christian by Will Williman, Sinning Like a Christian by Will Williman, Sacred Marriage, which is a book that I use regularly for uh, when I do premarital counseling for those uh, to whom I will officiate weddings, Sacred Marriage by Gary Thomas, and Real Sex by Laura Winner. Great, all three 
uh, great books. These are not how-to books, by the way. (laughs) They each have at least one chapter on the lust and the danger of lust, the sin of lust and the danger of lust, and so I offer that uh, for your own study uh, at home. The other thing that I've been really concerned about this week as I've thought about how to, to tackle this is, is, is how do I do it in the context of our congregation across all three services, recognizing the different ages and stages and the young hearers in the room. And so, and so I will use some key words and you know, language that I know that you will get that hopefully will go over the heads of, of our younger our, our younger people in the room. So pay attention. Pay attention. The passage that I uh, selected for the foundation of our conversation, um, Paul uses the words desires of the flesh. And I'm going to move this because I'm on a squeaky spot. It's uh, distracting. Paul uses the words desires of the flesh to express in other places what he, what he calls lust of the eyes or, or lust of the heart. And, and there is a tendency to spiritualize this sin. Oh, the things that I desire other than that, right? The things that have gotten my attention or that have captivated my heart. Um, places, experiences. You've, you've, heard, um, you've heard of um, um, an adrenaline high, right? The addiction of a, adrenaline or an adrenaline rush, the, the desire for experience, right? Those can all be categorized in the spiritual sense as lust, those things that take the place of God. But for the sake of our conversation... I'm going to be working from this definition. Lust is the disordered desire of sexual pleasure. The disordered desire for physical intimacy, physical pleasure. And one of the fascinating things about this topic is that while apparently everybody is talking about it and interested in it outside the church, given the amount of press and media attention allocated to it, but no one seems to want to talk about it inside the church. And as the preacher of the day, I can tell you I wasn't all that thrilled about it either. <laughs> I'm still convinced it was uh, some sort of senior pastor hazing. <laughs> let's, let's get the guy with half a theological education to talk about the most volatile topic of our time. Hashtag me too. <laughs> and, and so next week I'm going to tackle... Uh, gun violence. <laughs> Hashtag, I ain't afraid. <laughs> so I have studied hard and long and have been prayerful. Uh, and I tremble uh, as I come into this space, yet wanting to be faithful uh, to my call. We need to be talking about this inside the church. The church is the perfect place to talk about it. Because so much damage has been done to ourselves out of the unwillingness of the church to help frame it and shape it and talk about it openly and in a healthy way. 
We haven't been able to help our children navigate such turbulent waters because of our silence. And, and the problem is that it feels like the church has sort of failed us in the past because they've sort of taken two stances on this issue. Proclaiming a bunch of thou shalt nots or, or judgment or condemn, condemnment or by narrowing the definition as to what is proper in such a way that it leaves a good number of folks outside the conversation trying to figure it out for themselves. We need to talk about it. We need to figure it out. We need to frame it theologically. I mean, who better than Christians to see this theologically just like we do every other issue of our time? Those tough issues that can separate and divide us and cause tension and conflict and can be harmful. Those issues that can damage families and society. So if we're going to use the definition of disordered, then there must be an ordered, right? The healthy, proper way must be there must be an ordered desire. So let's explore that. The church's long-standing teaching of physical intimacy practiced exclusively inside the covenant of marriage is rooted in its understanding that the primary purpose for such activity is to expand the family. Almost from day one, that's been the church's position. In Genesis 1, the blessing pronounced over the sea, the creatures of the sea, the birds that fly above the earth, and mankind, Adam and Eve, was, was go and be fruitful and multiply. The same blessing pronounced again to Noah and his family after they, they came off the ark following the flood. Go and be fruitful and multiply. The Jewish people took this command seriously. And they never imagined a culture where physical intimacy served any other purpose than procreation. And this idea carried forward into the early Christian church. One second century um, scholar actually wrote... We Christians, this is a direct quote, we Christians, I think it's Justin Martyr, we Christians marry only to produce offspring. Only. Really? The early fathers wrestled with this as much as we do now in the context of the Christian faith. One of them put off his own conversion because he was convinced that to be a Christian for him, meant a life of celibacy, and he just was not ready to go there. But eventually he did, and he became one of the strongest voices in the Christian faith. And you know, we always try to, and Shane has taught me this, and I've learned well, that we always try to offer up some quotes from the Desert Fathers, those that go way back. We don't want to be too contemporary in our thinking, so we try to go back and get some quotes. And just so that you think, don't think they are all brilliant, I want to share this with you. Martin Luther had this to say. Had God consulted me in the matter of reproduction, 
I should have advised him to continue the generation of the species by fashioning them out of clay. (laughs) How brilliant was that, right? He didn't want to deal with it. He had a real problem with his own physical desire, didn't know what to do with it, and so dismissed it as being there has to be a better way to continue you know, the species without me being involved in it. Even still, this, the, uh, the orthodox understanding that physical intimacy should be approached at least with an openness to children or producing life, the possibility should always be there. This, they argue, is the divine plan, right? The divine design. But we can't stop there. It's just not practical. It's not very helpful for us 21st century Christians trying to navigate a sex-saturated culture with so many landmines and, and such turbulent waters. We've got to go beyond the sole purpose of expanding the family to to find an understanding of a properly ordered desire that can be emotionally healthy and life-giving. After all, this too is a gift from God. One of the good gifts of God to be enjoyed by the people of God. God's people The deadly sin of lust is a distortion of this oneness. Ultimately, the gift of human sexuality is about relationship, unity, oneness. The two shall become one flesh, Jesus said. And so so this distortion that occurs through our lust does damage to this oneness. And of the seven deadly sins, This one is the easiest to hide because no one knows what's going on in your mind and in your heart unless you're willing to act it out. And so it can be the most damaging because Scripture tells us that is when the light is shined on the darkness that the power of the darkness disappears. Amen? We know our natural desire has been disordered by the damage that it has done. And the ways that it's being used against us, the commercialization alone of our natural response, used to advertise everything from automobiles to hamburgers, is evidence that it's been disordered. I still am confused by the Hardee's commercials of last year. Disturbed is probably a better word. Really? Hamburgers? Where gluttony has its own TV network, the sin of lust has an entire industry. Video, videos, websites, um, TV, movie, books, retail stores, Broadway shows, travel destinations. There is a travel destination called hedonism. There are professional coaches to help us with and therapists to help us heal from the damage 
of our desires, our disordered desires. Last year's Me Too movement gave voice to women like never before to speak about the abuse they've long suffered. We saw its effects across a range of industries, sports, media, news, politics. And lest we think this is exclusive to men, half of the teacher-student scandals last year were that of female teachers. And our most recent political resignation was that of a female mayor of Nashville. And statistics show an explosion in the, expli- the use of explicit online material among our young women under 30. This is not a male-only club Ladies and gentlemen, the blockbuster book of 2012 geared specifically towards women that surpassed Harry Potter as the all-time best-selling book of paperbacks, of which 90% was purchased by women. So let us talk about it openly and honestly. And we're seeing the fruit of this disordered desire in our society by increase in charges of Sexual harassment, domestic violence, human trafficking, abortion, broken marriages, and any number of ways. And it stands as evidence against us of a misdirected, disordered desire. Something good that has been used improperly, out of order. If we're willing to say that TV shows and movies and video game violence bear some responsibility for mass shootings, we must say, likewise, admit the damage caused by the obsession in our culture with this topic, this issue. We are... Human beings, we we are divine creatures. The breath of God has been breathed into us. We're not objects. We are built for divine relationship with God and with each other. And the distortion of that does long-term damage to both our physical bodies our emotional health, and our spiritual maturity. To see another human being simply for the enjoyment of viewing their physical body is objectification. We need to call it that. Because they no longer become, they're no longer someone's daughter or son or or brother or sister or husband or wife. They're, They're this thing that we have used for our own selfish agenda. It's dishonoring to both them and the Creator. The natural response of desire is meant to be confined within relationship with shared responsibility to honor one another and God. Pleasure sought for pleasure's sake Separated from the purpose of unity is distorted and disordered. And so then the question becomes, 
What are we to do? What are we to do? Now each week, Pastor Shane has given uh, an, an opposing virtue to the deadly sin. And so today's offering is the virtue of chastity. The virtue of chastity. Now it's not what you think. Some of you are going, what else you got, pastor? (laughs) It's not what you think. Chastity is not celibacy. Religious celibacy is set apart for holy, specific purpose to obtain purity for the faith, to be used as a vessel or an instrument or a tool to do the work of God. This is chastity is not an abstinence or celibacy. It's about love and mutuality. It's about the proper and loving use of our natural human desires. One scholar put it this way, and I thought this was beautiful. Living as a chaste person means that our external expressions of sexuality will be under the control of love, control, ordered with tenderness and full awareness of each other, ordered desire. Chastity is is honesty in intimacy, where our physical relationships truthfully, truthfully express the level of personal commitment that we have with each other, being completely and open and honest with what we're experiencing, what we're feeling, so that together we can uh, process them properly and, and healthy. Chastity means to honor one another, both giving and receiving love without selfish intent. And it can be practiced in all relationships, not just those that are physical. Jesus was held up as the the model of chastity not just because he did not have a physical relationship with a, a, a female, but because of the way he loved openly and honestly everything and everybody. And that's the example that we need to hold dear to is honesty and openness in love and in unity. It teaches us to offer love deeper. Chastity costs us something. It is when we give of ourselves with no expectation or demands in return. It teaches us to offer ourselves to another human being by, by listening well, to be fully present, engaged, hearing and sharing by serving one another, by being helpful, and to love freely without expectation, and to forgive one another. Love that forgives is an example of chastity. And so now we are three quarters of the way through Lent. If you've been keeping count at home, and I know some of you are so ready for Easter. It's been a long Lent. We started 
on Ash Wednesday from the perspective of our mortality, knowing that this is not all there is. We shall die, right? To dust we shall return. And then in the past few weeks, we've taken a hard look at at the truth of our lives, our humanness, and the deadly sins that can dwell in us. And along the way, we asked you to come together in study, which some of you are doing in our Easter earthquake studies. We've asked you to, to, to give alms, to feed the poor, to serve your community. And I pray and have been praying that you have practiced a holy Lent. I pray, I pray that you have experienced the Lenten season like never before. And I hope that you will continue all the way to Easter. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday and begins the Holy Week. And we will worship together all the way through Holy Week. Uh, in this space on Thursday, over there on Friday. And if you've never experienced worship outside of Sunday, I encourage you to come and let us continue to walk this path to the resurrection. So here's the good news. Christ has not left us in our sin. He has made a way to deliver us out of those places that seem so broken and to have a hold on us that there is no hope. But there is, and it is in Christ Jesus that we find hope. Freedom, Paul says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Freedom to love rightly and express love rightly, to enjoy food rightly, to earn and save and spend money rightly, to rest easy on the Sabbath and to work out our faith diligently the rest of the week. Freedom to live the abundant life that Christ has offered. It is ours for the taking. We are no longer slaves to our excessive disorders or to our disordered desires. To live at peace with each other by the power of the Spirit that is at work in us, that has been breathed into us, that has been pronounced over us at our baptism, the Holy Spirit that Paul talks about in the spiritual gifts, we have been given all the grace that we need to navigate through those natural tendencies that, we, that get us in the ditch. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we're so thankful that you have not left us to our own vices, but have made a way and delivered us into that place of freedom where we can be the divine creatures that you've created us to be, that we can live in right relationship with you and with each other. And we thank you for the forgiveness that you have already extended, and we claim it in the name of the one who gave it. God, strengthen us in our faith and show us the way to be your people through Christ our Lord. Amen. 
Thanks for joining us this week. This Saturday at Harrison, we're hosting an annual Easter egg hunt on campus from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Bring the kids and have a good time. For more information, visit us on Facebook at Harrison Church or online at harrisonchurch.org.